Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Sergey, and if we have not met, I would love to meet you, grab a cup of coffee with you. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, so I love meeting with people and, and doing that. So if we have not met, I would love to meet you. If we have met and uh, you still want to grab a coffee, cup of coffee, just let me know. Uh, we'll, we'll schedule it out and we'll do it. Um, it's a joy for me to do that. So let me start with this. We all have a story, right? Like, and, and you're like, okay, we're talking about story here. That's good. We all have a story. Every story in here is different. I don't know if you thought about this. Like, every story is different in here. Or, or I always think about this when I go to an airport. I'm always like, man, there is many people walking through, and every one of these people have a story. Uh, every story is real. So every story is real because that's your story. You're living this story. And some of you here come from other parts of the country. Some of you come from other parts of the world. Like, I was born in Karachayevsk, Russia. You may have been born in Greeley, Colorado, right? Like, we are coming from two very far places, yet we're here. And and, and our story, we both have stories. My story is different than your story. But some aspect of our story are similar, right? Like, if you think about it, there's some Parts of our stories that are very, very similar, uh, like both of us were born, right? Like that, that we, we're here, so that, that means we had a beginning, right? That's the similarity. Both of us had, a, had to learn how to walk and talk. Like I, didn't, I wasn't born speaking English, you, you know? I had to learn how to, well, I had to learn how to speak English later in life, still struggling with it, but, but you know, you learn English first. I learned Russian first, right? But we still had to learn that. Like, you were not born like a walker. Like, you didn't come out and you were like, hey, I can walk. No, it took time for you to learn how to, how to uh, walk. Both of us didn't have to learn how to sleep, cry, and poop. Those are the things that are all similar. We all know how to do that from first day. And then from last week, we know that we're, we share another similarity of being born as sinners. Uh, and if you are here today... Uh, there's another similarity we share that God is not done with us. God is not done with us. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the plan of God, especially his plan uh, for the problem that we are all born in sin, right? So it's a, it's a doctrine that's responding to the doctrine from last week. And the reason we're talking about the fall and the plan of God is because we're in the middle of a sermon series called We Believe. And the series is unique to us. It's unique to us because we usually walk through books in the Bible, but right now we're studying our doctrines. Uh, We are in our fifth one, and so we're going to take the rest of the summer walking through our doctrines uh, instead of what we usually do is walk through books in the Bible. But even though we're not walking through a book in the Bible, the Bible will be our primary source for all of this conversation, right? So like, if you're thinking, okay, when are we going to get to the Bible? Uh, grab, there's a Bible in front of you, or grab a Bible, bring a paper Bible. I want us to be in the Word, all right? Um, and so uh, the, the, this is going to be the source and the authority that we draw all of our doctrine from. And as we talk about doctrine, I've been saying this every week over and over, is that the whole point of studying deep things of God is to understand God and grow in our affection towards Him. And in fact, that, that's what I've been praying for us as I've been studying these doctrines, that, that we won't just learn about them, 
but we would grow in our affection towards the Lord and Savior. So we're going to study the plan of God today, and it's going to be our fifth doctrine. And what we're going to do is just read the doctrine statement, and then we'll unpack it through a passage of Scripture, and then uh, we'll apply it to our hearts, all right? So the plan of God, it should be on the screen behind me and also in your bulletin if you want to see it. So let me read this. We believe that from all eternity, God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. And to do this, and he foreknew them and chose them all to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, God commands and implores all people to repent and believe, having set his saving love on those he had chosen and have ordained Christ to be their redeemer. This is the plan of God, right? So let me start off by saying this. This is a hard topic. This is a hard topic, period. Uh, This is a challenging topic, and throughout history, many have fought hard for different sides of this conversation. Not very many, many Christians disagree with the fact that we're born sinners, but how God saves sinners have been a topic of clashing opinions throughout history. And the two sides of the conversation are simply this, right? So on one side, which we'll call the one-hand position, believes that God alone works for our justification and saving, saving us, and we play no part whatsoever in our salvation, right? Let me read that again. So one-hand position means that believes that God alone works for our justification in saving us, and we play no part whatsoever in our, in our salvation. So the other side, uh, we'll call it the two-handed position, believes that in, in varying degrees, depending on who's advocating this position, that God and man work together in the process of justification, All right? And so, so this is the two positions that, 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 are, that are there. And, and the thing is, I have been on both sides of this conversation. I've been on both sides of this conversation. I grew up in a Christian family, and God saved me when I was about nine years old. Uh, but the conversation of the plan of God didn't come into my, my story or my radar till college college, I wanted to understand doctrine better, and so I engaged it. I started reading about it, and I couldn't understand and frankly didn't want to understand why God would pick some to be saved and others would be condemned. I hated that view, and I disagreed with any and all of my college friends who held it, and this included my wife. And I graduated college with the same two-handed position about salvation, I went on to do an internship at a church the following year, and during that year, I was not having this conversation with anyone. I was not arguing with anyone, but, but it was just the time it was me and the Bible, right? So I wasn't influenced with it through an argument about this. It was just me studying God's Word. I was reading through the book of Romans, and I remember reading Romans 8 and 9 and staring at the pages, and I didn't like what I read. I was sitting there, and I was going, I don't like this. I wanted those pages to say something else. I had a hard time with God's word in that moment. I was wrestling with it. And so today, I'm not going to be making some clever argument about God's plan. I want us to dive into the pages of the book of Romans. And we'll walk through this this passage 
you have some questions that we'll do our best to answer. But ultimately, from this passage, we will see the doctrine of God's clearly laid out. So if you don't have your Bibles or you you have your Bibles, grab them and flip to Romans chapter 8. But as you get there, let me just continue to talk about this. Because I have been on both sides of this conversation uh, about salvation, I have been hurt, hurt um, on both sides of the conversation. And I have hurt others. Right? This is a conversation that stings. And this is a conversation that people like to punch each other with. So I have dealt poorly with such topics in my younger days. And if you're sitting here, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, here goes another Calvinist about, about to teach something. I don't really care about Calvin. Uh, so, so he's a good theologian. Some things he says are okay. Some things he says are poor. I'm not his fanboy. I really love the word of God. I love the word of God. And the word of God will have the final say and not Calvin. Right? Like, that is something that I want us to always, as a church, know. We're not going to be a church that if somebody says, hey, are you guys a Calvinistic church? We're a Word of God church. We're, we love the Word of God. And then, um, and the reason we're talking about this doctrine, again, is also not because it's just, it's not in a vacuum. It's not just something that I'm like, hey, you know what? That's a good topic for a church to talk about. No, we're walking through a series of doctrines. And so this is, a, it's not a doctrine that stands by itself. This doctrine does not stand by itself. It's answering to the problem pointed out by the previous doctrine statement. And last week, we covered that the doctrine of fall, or the fact that we are born sinners, and as sinners who will offend a holy God, what do we deserve? If we want a quick answer to that, we deserve punishment, right? No. We deserve to be removed from a holy God for all eternity. In fact, if we're born walking ourselves, we're born as walking ourselves away from Him. God is holy, we are not. So every human has the sickness of sin in their heart and every human is separated from God by this condition. So this doctrine that we're that we're studying today, it's, a, it's an answer to how will God respond to that? What is his plan for the hordes walking themselves towards destruction? And let me say one last thing and then we'll jump into the text. I know I'm saying like third time saying something else, but it's good for us to prepare, right? Um, last thing is that I want to put my cards on the table again. I'm not interesting, interested in a debate or, or starting a fight, right? So, so after this, if you're going, okay, like, let's meet for coffee. I'm ready to fight. I'm not, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I did that plenty in college, and there was zero fruit from it. There was zero fruit from it. Uh, I heard this, this example numerous years ago, and I believe it's helpful. This example is helpful for us as we engage to a topic that people like to throw punches at. And this, is, this is a helpful example. So there's certain doctrines that are non-negotiable. They're non-negotiable doctrines. that they're, they're at the heart of who we are as Christians. So things such as the triune God, uh, who is the creator and redeemer, Uh, the perfect and trustworthy word of God, the fall of humanity, Jesus' perfect sinless life, death and resurrection in our place for our sins, and salvation by grace through faith alone and Jesus alone. Like, these are are non-negotiables. 
Like these are the things that we put in our hand and hold them tight with a tight grip and they're closed hand doctrines, right? If anyone denies or redefines any aspect of these doctrines, they simply mean that they are moving away from what Christianity is. Right? So if somebody says, the word of God, I just don't know about it, that usually means they're moving away from Christianity. Or, I think Trinity is not really Trinity. It's like, I'm glad you think that, but that's not Christianity. That's not, that's not the doctrine of who, who Christ is or who, who triune God is. Okay, so, these, um, so that's what you do with, with the closed-hand doctrine. There are also open-hand doctrine that we must hold most, more loosely and graciously. These doctrines are important, so don't hear me say they're not important. They're important, but they are secondary. They are secondary in that godly, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people who study the Scripture can dis- still disagree over them. Things such as the mode of baptism. Is it infant or adult? Or spiritual gifts, style of worship, mode of church government. I'm not saying they're not important. Those are important, but they are secondary. And here's what what the theologian said. He said, the open-handed issues are important for the well-being of a Christian faith. The closed-handed issues are important for being of a Christian faith. So we're never going to tell you that you have to see this, this doctrine, uh, the way we see it, to be a part of our community, community of faith, uh, or for you to properly love God. Wherever you land on this topic, you'll be welcomed, embraced as a child of God and a part of the family. It's just good for you to know where we're coming from, all right? This is where we land on this conversation. So with grace... And kindness, let's talk about the plan of God through the, through, through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. So if you're not there, go to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. I really want you to see this, okay? So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, Everyone loves this verse. Everyone loves this verse, right? Like, uh, you probably have heard many sermons on this verse, and you probably even have a mug or a shirt that says Romans 8.28. I was watching a TV show recently, and that was the whole theme of the, of the show was Romans 8.28. I was like, this is fascinating. Even, like, Hollywood is making movies with this verse now. And the first thing to notice about, about this verse is that it's not true for everyone. It's not true that all things work together for good for everyone. No, it's all things work together for good for those who love him. Things are not working out good by themselves either, right? They are working together for good because God is in charge. This is a verse that is dealing with those who have put their hope and trust in Jesus. It's a verse that is highlighting our comfort in our loving Father, for those of us who have a relationship with the Father, now rest in that relationship, not in the circumstances. When things are going well, we praise God, uh, no matter what is going well, right? We give God praise because it is only because of Him that we get to experience that. But when things go wrong, we know that it didn't go wrong completely because God is with us. God is in charge, and according to Proverbs 16:33 the lot is cast into the lap and it's 
Every decision is from the Lord. So the universe is not run by blind faith. Like it's not, it's not set in motion and coldly observed by a distant deity. No, it's controlled by our loving Father. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, said, Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So if we think we require some good thing that God has withheld from us, in reality, we don't absolutely need it. God knows what we need. At the same time, if we feel like our life is ruined because of something bad that happened, this verse tells us the reality. The hardship is playing some very important role in our lives. It may be teaching us or molding us or humbling us, reminding us not to trust our own frail strength. Everything that happens to us is being used by God in love for for our good. Uh, There's so much more to say about this verse, right? Like there's so much that I could spend a couple weeks unpacking just this verse alone, but we need to move on. We need to move up to the next verse. Paul is about to explain the order of salvation in the next two verses, but these are the two verses that often get skipped to get straight to verse 31. Uh, Everybody skips these next two verses and go, verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's a big no-no in reading your Bible. Uh, You can't pick and choose what you like and don't like, right? We we have to, if we like verse verse uh, 29 or 28, then we need to like 29 and 30 and verse 31, right? Like it's all together. Uh, God decides that. God decides that this is the word of God. So when Paul says, what shall we say to these things? What things? The things that we skipped? Yeah, the things that we skipped. Uh, This is like watching the last five minutes of a movie and loving how it ends, but having no no clue why and how it got there. So how did we get there? Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among Many brothers. So did I just use the word for new and predestined in one sentence? I did, but it's mostly Paul did that. Those are the words that make people very anxious and angry. And before diving into these, these words and defining them, listen to the context. Listen to the context here. God's definition of good is much greater than ours. So verse 29 starts with the word meaning that it's connected to the previous verse. So the verse 29 and 30 explain what God's purpose from verse 28 actually is, what God is working out in all circumstances of life. His purpose in all of this is that we would be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is conforming us. He is shaping us, maturing us through every circumstance, good or bad, to look more and more like his son. Right? So that's the context of this. Now look at these words now, and let's make everyone nervous. Foreknowledge and predestination. So as we start on this path, we need to start with a proper biblical definition for these words. As we read the Bible, we can't define terms for ourselves however we want. The Bible does that for us. So we let the Bible define the Bible. The Bible has authority over our lives. 
So we can't fall into a mistake of saying, I know this word means this, but Paul really actually, I think, may be saying this. Like, we can't do that. Because if somebody says that, you have to say, according to whom? Where are you getting that definition? Do the study. Also, as we dive in, we shouldn't try to figure something out without the word of God. Like, this is a conversation that you can't not use the word of God. You have to use the word of God to dive into this conversation, especially with words that are so divisive. So, let, let let me give you an example of what foreknowledge is not. Okay, so this is not what foreknowledge is, but this is usually how the conversation kind of is framed. Um, And then we'll see what foreknowledge is. So we can't say, well, foreknowledge means that God knew who was going to choose him in the future and in retrospect wrote everybody's name down in the book of life. He knew who was going to take their faith and put it in Christ since he knew that he could write those names down at the beginning. And there's numerous reasons why this definition is wrong. But let's start with, where do you see this in the Bible? Where do you see this in the Bible as a definition of foreknowledge? We need to make sure we don't put God into a confinement of time. And we definitely shouldn't use back to the future as a way to explain foreknowledge. God is not inside of time. He's outside of time. God always is. Today isn't something that God knows about. It's a place that he is. Uh, Yesterday isn't something that God knows about. It's a place that he is. 20 years from now, it's a place that he is. And a century from now, it's a place that he is. It's not something he knows. It's a place that he is. He's eternal. He is always, and he is everywhere. That is the God of the Bible. Also, thinking that God knows the future, figure out who will choose him, and in retrospect, writes down their names in the book of life, assumes that faith belongs to us. Is faith ours? Not according to the Bible. Not according to the Bible. So Ephesians, 8, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Faith to believe and receive grace is a gift of God. We receive it as a gift so that no one may boast. This is what we studied over and over in the book of Galatians. If you were with us through that book, that's what we talked about, that we boast in nothing else but Christ crucified. Okay, that's what foreknowledge is not. Now, what is foreknowledge in the Bible? What, what, what does the Bible define this for us? How does the Bible define this for us? Well, let's go to Amos, Amos 3.2. Amos 3.2 says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So God is speaking in this verse. He's talking here. He's speaking here. And he's talking to the Israelites through the prophet of Amos. And he says, you only among all the families of the earth have I known. So God, God knows all the families of the earth, doesn't he? Like, doesn't God know everybody on this earth? Of course he does. Then why is he referring to the Israelites as you alone have I known? Well, it's because there's a difference between knowing someone as being aware of them or having some knowledge about them and knowing someone as having a relationship with them. In the Bible, when we read that God knows someone, it means that his love is set on him in a personal, relational way. So when God takes knowledge of people in the special way, he sets his choice 
on them. John Stott, he's a theologian, he says, foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. Another verse, another verse to see this at play is Matthew 7, 23. And Matthew 7, 23, we read, And then when I declared to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is not saying he didn't know about them. No, he, he, he means that Jesus never had a relationship with them. So a proper biblical definition of for new is for love. For love. God set his love on us. And he does this even before the universe was made. Uh, look at Ephesians 1, 3, 3 through 6 with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in every heavenly place, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. So he loved us. God loved us, and he chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to himself. To himself. God didn't wait to see what we might look like, right? Like God didn't go, okay, I'm, I'm wondering if Sergey is going to be a good or bad guy. No, he did this for knowledge, for loved me, before he even created this earth. Before we, we have done anything good or evil, he for loved us and set us apart for his own. Now that is a biblical definition of foreknowledge. For those he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined. Now predestined, predestined means decide or ordain ahead of time what destiny you will have. In Greek, this means to determine a horizon and set out for that horizon. To connect this to our text here, God, because of his love for us, set a destination for us to be with him in glory conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Now connecting even to the previous verse, all things work together for your good because you were chosen and loved before you existed, before you ever existed. All things work for your good because all things work to make you like Jesus. Okay, now verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is talking about the same person here. This is not that some are justified and some are called. No, no, this is, this is the same. This verb is describing applying to, to the same person here. They're all verbs applying to the same person. Not only did God for loved and predestined, he also called. A perfect example of the way God calls is in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. Uh, Paul is writing this and he says, For we know, brothers, Loved by God that he has chosen you because of our gospel came to you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So God chosen you. How do we know that? Because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power uh, and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul preached to many, right? Like if we're talking about this, Paul preached to many. Those who responded with deep deep conviction only do so because God chose them. 
They're called by God through Paul's sermon because, he, because the gospel hits their heart. And I love this. I love this because this is very practical because we, we, don't, we can just kind of look at our lives and the way God has saved us. I love this because we, we are, we, when we think about our story, the way God saved us, each person in, in here has a unique, unique story of how God did that. I, I love getting together. Whenever I say, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee, my first question to you will be, what is your story? And as you share your story, it's in there, you share how God saved you, how God called you. And all come from different backgrounds. Each one of us has a unique story, but the end result is always the same, that his love, God's love, became real. And, And that is the point of your testimony or whatever, is that you describe how God's love becomes so alive to you, and that changed you. Because God wooed you. You can look at all the circumstances and the people and the prayers and the events leading up to your salvation and, see, and you see that God was working and he was preparing your heart. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. So God draws him in. God calls those he foreloved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he woos, he calls, and he does it in so many different ways. Paul, Paul is an example of this story. Uh, it describes his conversion in Galatians. We walked through this conversion back in the day, but, but listen to this story. Uh, Galatians 1, 13 through 15, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. This is Paul describing his story, right? How I, pre, uh, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was ad- advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace... So Paul is saying that God knew him and set him apart before he was born. But God chose to save him on the road to Damascus. God is the one who saves us. And that's why this is our doctrine statement. That's why we believe that from all eternity, God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. And to this end, he foreknew them and chose them all to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, God commands and implores all people to repent and believe, having set his saving love on those he has chosen and have ordained Christ to be their redeemer. So God does all that. He is in charge of salvation. He's in charge of salvation. Now let's finish our text because we're not done yet with our passage, right? That's great that that's our statement, but the passage didn't end on uh, called. And for those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Uh, we talked a lot about justification again in the book of Galatians. Uh, that was a topic, that was one of the themes of the book of Galatians. But justification is a twofold process. Uh, our sins, all of them, all of them were absorbed by Jesus on the cross. 
And God's perfect plan, his son went to the cross. He was sinless. God, Jesus was sinless. He obeyed all the laws perfectly. We are born in sin, but when God calls us, in an instant, the wrath of God that was reserved for us is placed on Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. There's a great exchange. His righteousness falls on us. And this happens to us in an instant. This is part of this glorious change for new, predestined, called justified. But Paul's not done yet. He says, those he justified, he also glorified. To be glorified means to have all sins eradicated and to be made perfect in body and soul. Paul is speaking of the future glorification in the past tense. He's saying, is it as certain as any other part of glorious chain here? He's so certain of it that it might as well have already happened. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? As we hear the gospel, as we hear the gospel, we experience being called by God. We are justified because we we have put our faith in the work of the cross. Now, now we can look back at the chain and know that before the world was ever made, God foreloved us and predestined us to be justified. We can look up the chain and know that the eternity will be in glory with Jesus. Do you see the beauty of this now? Do you see the beauty of all of this? That's why Paul can end this chapter with, what then shall we say to these things? What things? The fact that God has set his affection on us before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us to conform to the image of his son, and the fact that he called us and justified us in the moment and then glorified us when all things are made new in heaven and on earth. What shall we say to all, all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, how for, for you is he? Well, he set his affection on you before anything was. Before the foundation was ever laid, God in his heart had affection for you. If God is for you, what can be against you? Listen to what he described. He who did not spare his own son, this is verse 32. Uh, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not, also with him, graciously give us all things? You see, that much. His son's life. What shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there anything that can separate, separate us from the love of Christ? Absolutely not. 
We get to celebrate these, tru- these truths because God had a plan to redeem sinners like you and me before the foundation of the earth. We were destined for destruction, but God in love chose us. He pulled us out of our collapsing kingdoms and put us into his family. And may we celebrate that he forloved us. May we rejoice that he predestined us. May we rest in his calling of us. May we fall at the feet of Jesus because he justified us. And may we enjoy Jesus in glorification. Let me pray for us.